hope I didn't overshoot tonight. I, I'm like my father, I'm a, I err on the side of content. Uh, it's not super heavy, the text. His will be much worse, I'm sure, than mine, just to give you a heads up. But uh, I do have a, a kind of a bunch to get through. I'm really excited to share it with you. I hope it will be helpful uh, on your journey. Journey is a word we're gonna use a lot. So before we get going though, it would be well for us to begin as we should begin all journeys with a prayer. Not just as a formality, but really because we believe that there's somebody listening. So let's pray together. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we commit our way this evening to you and ask you to join us in a special way this evening on our way as we figure out what that way is together and embark upon it as we talk about some scriptures and some ideas that may be familiar, may be unfamiliar, maybe learn some new words, we'll see. But we commit our way to you and ask you to give us wisdom, to unite our hearts, make our minds alert, even as it is in the evening hour where sometimes we're kind of ready to be done with the day. Make us ready to hear and to ponder these things together. We ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I... I have horrible printer problems at home, which just means that I've been disorganized and printing off or, or, or going and getting the, the toner that I need. So I printed this off. You have a much nicer copy than I do, although mine's kind of in color. <laughs> Not really. Uh, and so I brought my laptop so I could actually, and the font's bigger and I'll make sure I don't miss any points. But what you have in front of you there, well, first of all, the title. This is part one of the next three weeks starting tonight. The Great Story. Dad will jump up and do parts two and three, I think. Is that right? We'll, we'll share part three. We'll share part three. That's right. That's what we discussed. So my assignment tonight is to talk about where the great story begins, creation and corruption, Genesis 1 to 11. He's going to pick up with Genesis 12 and following next week. But I want to begin in, actually, let me draw attention to your picture there. It's not entirely clear exactly what we're looking at. Clearly there's light. There seems to be some uh, kind of chaotic context. Is it land? Is it water? Is it even material? Is it just like the raw material waiting to be formed and fashioned and filled? And We don't know. But the light is the main point of that picture. And I chose it for that reason. And we'll come to that in a minute. So, kind of a carrot. You can eat it later. I want to start in a maybe an unexpected place. Number zero. Some important features of our faith. So, these are words and concepts that we've probably heard before. But uh, I want to locate our, our talk starting here. And then I think why I do that will become clear in a minute. So, in the Catholic world, you're going to hear the word Trinity. It's a big deal to us. We start our prayers with the sign of the cross, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? the Trinity. When a priest gives us a blessing, it always or typically either begins or, or concludes with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our creed that we say together has three main parts, uh, four main parts, I guess, but, um, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the first three parts of and say four. I think there are more than that. In any case, the, the principal three parts at the beginning start with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so on. 
We believe, as Catholics, that there is one God who subsists in three persons, kind of a mystery there, how that math works out, which are nonetheless one substance, one, three, one. So we call the first person of the Trinity Father. There's no mystery here. You all know this. But the reason we do is because Jesus taught us to use that language of Father. And he does it in Matthew 6, verses 7 to 9, when he teaches his apostles how to pray. When you pray, don't go on and on like the Gentiles do. They think that they'll be heard for all their fancy talking. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Just say, Our Father. And when Jesus coaches us to call his Father our Father, that's because he is in the process of making us to be one with him, brothers and sisters with him in the same family. So then we get to call his Father our Father because we're related with him. We become part of this one family. So that's why we call the first person of the Trinity Father. We call the second person of the Trinity Son, whom we know is Jesus, in relation to the Father. The Son is who he is in relation to the Father. He's also called the Word of God. So I've got a text in letter B there in your notes. In the beginning, John says, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So there's your creation language. And then John, same author, who maybe you know, maybe you don't know, also wrote the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible, also records Jesus identifying himself, not just in the beginning, so time-wise, he was at the start, but he is identified as the beginning and the end. So in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, we read the words of Jesus himself saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And John also records him identifying himself as a light. So here's Jesus again in 22.16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. A strange way to talk about yourself, maybe. We'll come back to that, though. All this is stuff we're going to come back to. So, but I need to put it in front of you right now in your, in your, uh, in your mentality. And that makes sense, this light business, given what John also said about Jesus back in the gospel. So John wrote Revelation. He also wrote the gospel of John, where he says in the first chapter, in him, that is Jesus, the word, was life, and the life was the light of men. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And then several chapters later in chapter 8, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, spend a little bit of extra time on Jesus. He's the beginning. He's the light. Um, creed spends most time on him, too. If, if you uh, come to Mass and you say the Creed, you'll notice this. Then we call the third person of the Trinity the Holy Spirit. And we say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son as love and life and giver of life. So, from the tour... So that's the first set of things to be thinking about. Uh, Trinity is a big deal. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The second thing to bear in mind as we jump in a minute into Genesis is that from the tour last week or two weeks ago, 
It was, I think. We all, uh, most of us anyway. You guys are getting your tour tonight, aren't you? Luckies. Um, I'm sure it'll be a, a more pristine presentation. So he did a, the rough draft with us two weeks ago, and then he's going to give you the, the final draft. Uh, we noticed during that tour that the main worship ceremony in the Catholic Church, which we call the Mass, takes place in a space that is highly structured. Father talked about the shape of the nave and the shape of all the bits of it. The order or form of the building itself is significant, has important weight. And secondly, that space is filled with features. So it's a highly structured space, and it's filled with statues and stained glass with detailed imagery. It's got candles. There's an altar, a baptismal font, a tabernacle, garden-like plant life most of the time. Interesting. Those are all significant in the way that they give glory to God and promote what is good through what is seen by our eyes and experienced in our physical life. So why do I begin this way? Is it my assignment to introduce the great story, part one? Well, yes, 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 yes. And so we come now to number one in your handout, the great story, part one. So creation is how I've titled it, the introduction to God's blessing plan. And here's kind of a summary of the beginning of the story. The story of our Christian faith, yours and mine, here, even as we're talking together, begins not when we decide to follow Jesus of Nazareth, who was a real historical man who lived. It doesn't begin when we're born, nor even when the church is born, as we read in the New Testament. The story of our faith actually begins where the Bible does, in the beginning of the great story, the scriptural revelation of God and of God's universal blessing plan that extends from God's first act of creating, which we read about in Genesis, through the time we're in, all the way to God's renewal of his creation, which we read about in Revelation. In a real sense, then, the story of our faith begins not as our story, but as God's great three-part or three-act play. Call it the drama of the divine, the divine drama. <laughs> which the first book of Genesis introduces in a very artful way in its account of God's creation, Genesis 1 and 2, of how the creation became corrupted by sin and rebellion, 3 through 11, and of how God responded to this situation by starting a covenant program that unfolds his rescue and restoration mission which we could say is Genesis 12 through the rest of the Old Testament, ending in Malachi, or we could even include the New Testament, including Revelation. And that's where Dad's going to go next week. And it does this. It unfolds this rescue and restoration mission in a way, or in many ways, actually, that connect with our faith very deeply, especially at the beginning. Sometimes people think of the church, that's a New Testament thing, right? And I'm going to say no. Uh, not just, not first, not principally. It does, it, it unfolds this, this beginning to end story in a way that connects very deeply with our faith and the faith of the church. And it continues to give shape to the way we even think about church and about the faith life. And I want to unpack some of that right now. 
Okay, so I started the way I did on purpose. And now in your handout, we're at 1.1, where it says, as regards the Trinity. Okay, so I'm going to try and connect back to what we just did with the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the names for Jesus, and the, the structure of our church and the fullness of it. I'm going to try and connect with each of those points, <coughs> starting with the Trinity. Genesis 1.1. If you have your Bibles, I see them there. I've got, I've got it in your notes, but much more enjoyable is to look at your text. I mean, this is fun. So crack open your Bible. Very first pages, <coughs> first book of the Bible, first chapter, first verse. We read these words. In the beginning, in fact, your, your translation, you might want to do this because we'll be in your translation a bit, and it'll be a little different from what I've got in your notes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So, oh, and then one more thing, verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So let's make a few observations here. And I've got headings here, A, B, oh dear, and I think I have a typo. A, B, should be A, B, C, and D. Does yours say A, B, B, C? <laughs> Never a handout without a typo or eight. First off, letter A. I have in slash by. Is that what yours reads? There's a translational question mark here about how you, how you translate this from Hebrew, which is the original language, into English. Could be in the beginning, or just in beginning, or even by beginning, as in by way of, because that little preposition in, in Hebrew, can work a couple different ways. Could be by way of the beginning, right? So from 0.1.B, here's John, if you look back up in your notes, Page one, John calls Jesus the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were, he was involved in creation, is what his verse three says. And then in Revelation, this is page two in your notes, top of page two, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Right? So here's Jesus identifying himself as the beginning. Now in Genesis 1-1, we have either in or by way of the beginning, God created. So we might have, and most Genesis nerds agree that this is what's going on here. The author is saying, this is the unnamed second person of the Trinity right here. This is Jesus in the very first sentence of scripture. You don't have to wait till Matthew 1.1 1, 1 to learn about it. Here's where it starts. <laughs> That's the son. In relation to, this is letter B, 1.1b in your notes. In relation to 14 to 19, in, and this is where you're, I don't have this in your notes, so you're going to have to look in your text. So if you look in Genesis 1, it got your nose in the page here. Look all the way down to verse 14 of chapter 1. In fact, someone who's got it open, read it for us. 
Just shout it out. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. It was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God sent them in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Okay, lots of detail about the creation of these lights. How we did it, what they're for, what their what their job is. But how do we square all that with chapter one, verse three? And God said, <coughs> Let there be light. And if you look in your Bible, verse five, the end of verse five, there was evening and there was morning the first day. End of verse eight, there was evening and there was morning the second day. End of verse 13, or just verse 13, I guess. There was evening and there was morning the third day. So now it's the fourth day and God creates lights. Well, number one, how do we have this orderliness between evening and morning the previous three days? And what or who on earth is this light in verse three? Any ideas? Well, of course you do. Yeah, I've been leading you there, right? So back up to wherever it was here in... John's writings, Revelation. So back up on page two of your notes. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. it's the second reference on your page two. I'm the bright morning star. Then in, in John 1, 4 to 5, in him is the light of men. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Jesus himself in John 8, I am the light of the world. So what's going on here? And notice, if you're familiar with the rest of the first chapter, those bits we didn't read, days one, two, or two, three, and four, uh, and, and all the rest of them, all the way through day six, God makes things, doesn't he? And God made this, and God made that. And then God saw it. That is to say, he evaluated it and said, yes, that's art. That's good. Um, I did, a, I did a good job, and now goodness, the goodness I did, resides in it. But there's no make word with regard to the light in verse 3. You notice that? God just says, let there be light. And there was. So what's going on there? Is this a, the kind of light that wasn't made, but that was just addressed? Okay, and we won't put all that together until we get to letter C, which I think is letter B, twice, B prime. <laughs> I just changed it on mine, but it's A, B, B, uh, page, page three, right? The word God in English is singular. But if you look in your text, again, your Bible, if you have it open, I don't have it printed out for you, so you're going to need to have it open. Chapter one still. Look at verse 26 in chapter 1. What do you read there? That God said, let, let us make man, yes, Alicia, in our image, after our likeness. These are, we call them first-person plural pronouns. 
what on earth is happening here? That's the same word in verse 26. That's up in verse 1. In the beginning, God. In Hebrew, the word Elohim, you might have heard of it. You've heard words like Amen, or well, that's a Hebrew word. Elohim or, is a word, maybe you've heard, it's, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word that's plural in its grammatical form. So the word God in English is singular, but it's translating a plural word. So now it starts to make sense. In the beginning, or by way of the beginning, maybe that's the unnamed second person of the Trinity, God, plural word, but standing in for the first person of the Trinity, created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and without content, formless and void, and the uh, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So, quite possibly, that which is such a big deal to us as Catholics, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we've got all three of them represented in the first few verses, few, first couple of verses, first two verses of the great story that begins with creation. So our faith anchors itself and its most prized possession and understanding in the very first two verses of the entire script. So we got Spirit of God in verse 2. The church's understanding, this is not in your notes, just let me think about this out loud for a minute. Well, I've got it written down, but you listen carefully. The church's understanding of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is obviously something that doesn't begin in the New Testament, but far earlier. And specifically, its understanding of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. If you've said the creed before, you know this. If you haven't, I'll say it. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. When we say those words, we're talking about what's exactly presented in the very first two verses of the whole Bible. So we got the first person of the Trinity mentioned first. Well, mentioned second in Hebrew, I guess. In the beginning, there's the second person of the Trinity. God, there's the first person of the Trinity, created the heavens and the earth. So the first and second persons are mentioned first as co-agents of creation. Then the Spirit is mentioned following this as the as sort of at the ready for the life-giving creative acts to follow. So the Holy Spirit is poised, waiting, hovering over the surface of the deep, ready to be sent in these creative acts of love and life-givingness. So that's the connecting point with the beginning of the story and the beginning of our story. 1.2, as regards the orderly structure of the church. So we talked about the church having this really highly ordered structure, right? It's shaped in a particular way. Everything's a lot. And then we also have lots of stuff in the church. <laughs> We've got statuary and icons and art of all kinds and candles. Looking at 1.3, in our text to 2-3, which I don't have for you. We're not going to read the whole thing. But on the whole, what you have are these verses, this is in your notes, letter A, describing God's activity in creation, what God does to order the situation of verse 2. So if in verse 2 we read, now the earth was formless and void, or uh, it, different translations will do differently, without form and empty or void. It's got no shape 
and it's got no stuff. So this is the challenge. This is the, before, this is the object that needs to be overcome, right? The, the obstacle. So what God does is he transforms this into a good state of perfect readiness for humans and the fulfillment of God's blessing plan. His creative work consists in, and we like alliteration, so here you go, preparing a place and populating it with people for a purpose. I think I stole that line from Dad. Or we might say, and I've heard him say it, and I've said it a lot, forming it first to have a certain shape and a structure, and then filling it. That's how God builds creation. So look at your, your little chart there, your little table. It's interesting. And you don't notice this stuff unless you slow way down and ponder. What am I reading here when I read these texts? Days one to three are all about addressing the first problem. Now the earth was formless. So days one to three give it form. He separates light and darkness. He separates the waters into sea and sky. And he separates, I think I went the wrong way with my hand there, sea and sky. Right? <laughs> Pay attention, Steiner. He separates the fertile earth from the fertile seas so, so that these areas of creation as they're being formed can now do what he endows them with the capability of doing on days four through six on the right side. And we read this already. He makes the luminaries to govern the day and the night. He makes the fish and the birds, the fowl, to fill the sea and the sky. And he makes land creatures, including, most importantly, humans, to occupy earth. And then day seven, we're finished. There's a rest. Everything is just as it ought to be. Sometimes we even use the word justice to talk about that state. And it kind of there's a, there's a rhyme there, or a pun, Everything is just as it ought to be. It's a state of justice, just as it ought to be. If, you, uh, if I had my wits about me and had a couple more minutes, I would have inverted that table. We would have started with day one down here, and two and three, and then day four, five, and six, and then justice at the top. I think we should do that in the future because that helps us to make the connecting point that what God is building in creation is not just this random platform on which to go ahead and host this random set of events in which he sort of gets the move like a chessboard. He's building a temple. Creation is a temple. Even structurally, it looks like one in the way that it's, it's talked about. We camp on verses 26 to 27, way, way up in the, uh, the top end of chapter 1. This is what we talked about a little bit ago. God said, let us make man in our image. The significance of the plural there, when he creates humankind, he endows humanity with the ability to represent him. Him and his plural oneness. So, uh, yeah, I'll just read the, the table here that you have in your, in your notes. Under letter B, are we all together there? So this is one... Point two, letter B, where we have the image or likeness of God, which really refers to this unique capacity that you and I have to resemble and represent God. It's that, that is the image, is that in which 
You and I, all of us, were created, but specifically man and woman. And I have a couple of extra references there for you. It's that image to which we do not conform in our sinfulness, starting with Adam and Eve. It's that to which, sorry, that which is Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ is discussed, he's not in the image of God. He is the image of God. The image is that to which recreated man and woman, you and I, as we're baptized and confirmed and brought forward through the sacraments, are being transformed. And finally, the image is that in which recreated man and woman will be glorified. We have a few New Testament references there. The commission was to fill the earth after this. So he creates man and, and, and woman in his image and commissions them with this blessing. Fill the earth, subdue it, overrun the world that I have created, this temple that I have created. Make it full of likenesses of me. That's why the Catholic Church is so high on having babies. Among, you know, it commissions the married among us to make babies because these are image bearers. This is how God fills up the temple with his own likeness. Why does God do that? Anybody wonder about that? Why does he say, fill the earth to do it? What's his long game? Maybe to come into the temple that he has just built, but only at such a time that it has been properly filled up with his image that he looks upon it and says, ah, look at all my images here. This is a God-friendly place. I can enter and fellowship here and share myself with these images and make them part of me in this temple. So God intends to enter creation, his temple, and fellowship with humankind. Old church father, doctor of the church, I believe, St. Irenaeus, am I right about that? He's a doctor, not just a father. Talks about this in his provocatively entitled essay. I think I just spit. Uh, I get kind of enthusiastic, you'll notice. Uh, the imperfection of creation by which he doesn't mean that God goofed anywhere, but that it, it's begun now in a state of justice, but it's heading somewhere. There's a mission. There's an end goal, a telos. So it's, it's perfect in its state, but it's not perfect in its mission. It has somewhere it's going. And where it's going is ultimately um, the conjoining of these two spaces of creation, God's space, the heavens, and man's space, the earth into one space. That's the goal, is to bring these two spaces together. God wants to fellowship immediately with man, mankind. Looking ahead, letter C, to chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, you can flip over the page, verses 5 through 17. In fact, I want to read that because it's not in your notes. You can read along. Again, you'll have the NAB there on the table in front of you, but I'll have the, the ESV. But the words are very similar. So this is a more of a camera zoom in to that moment where God formed first the man. And it zooms in and, and looks in a much greater detail. So chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. By the way, that word breath is the same word as the word spirit in verse uh, 2, right? The the spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, was over the face of the earth. And now we have Ruach here, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So that's why I talk about the spirit as this loving, life-giving person that proceeds from the Father and the Son. Finally, verse verse 8. The Lord God... So he made the man and became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. We've got this temple, and now we're building the Holy of Holies. So we've got the sanctuary. Uh, No, that's not right. What did we learn to call it two weeks ago? I've had some wrong words. I've been a Catholic since 2011, but I still get the words wrong. So it's not the vestibule out here, it's the narthex. Then there's the nave, and then the... Sanctuary, yeah. So I need to get that sorted out. So what's going on here is that he's created the nave and he's formed it and he's filled it. Now he's creating the sanctuary. Verse 8, he planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there, a sanctuary, and there he put the man, the first priest, whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Listen to this structure. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. So we have jewels. Got some gold in the nave and the sanctuary, too. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So we've got this highly structured four square with jewels and stones. And it's a, it's a garden, it's plant life. I think I mentioned that earlier. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden now, our Bibles say something like to work it and keep it. What does NAB say? Cultivate. To cultivate? cultivate? Yeah, I like that. And care for it. And care for it. Okay. Um, the words are, are pretty dynamic. Some interpreters have even proposed to worship and obey. Whatever the case, uh, I mean, they're all kind of related. It looks very priestly. It looks very care keep, caretaker-ish. There's a lot of husbandry going on here which is what a priest does. And I'm looking at one here. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, must surely eat of, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So here we have the first catechesis. We have the first law, first training session. So there's an environment, there's a, there's a nave, there's a sanctuary, and there's a priest, and there's work to do, and there are instructions. You got it all. And then on we go. I have to wake up my computer here. So that's what I have there. The most intimate life-giving act of the Trinity, God creating him through the Spirit. That's your first bullet point under letter C. There's the extra attention to orderliness and structure in 8 to 14. And finally, the priestly role of the man in verse 15. God isn't, again, I said this earlier, let me just recap it. God isn't creating a structureless stage 
on which to act out a series of random events that lead to knowledge of him in some random way. Right? That's not his intention with all of his making. He's creating a temple, which he eventually means to enter in order to share himself in communion with his image bearers. Then, tragedy. Corruption. So my assignment tonight was to talk about creation and corruption and how our story, even in this room tonight, connects with the great story. So we've, we've talked about how it connects with creation, now corruption. 2.1 in your notes. The story of the fall serves a threefold purpose in Scripture. It reports what happened to that which God made good and intended for blessing. It explains the origin of the darkening of the mind, the struggle against sin and death. We'll learn all about these later, but I'll just introduce them to you now. In the fall, Adam and Eve lost three gifts that they had before they made that terrible decision. They had three gifts. One was um, the gift of infused knowledge. Thinking wasn't a difficult thing. They understood things readily that they experienced and were told. They had the gift of um, the absence of concupiscence, massive $64 word, just means that temptation to sin wasn't there, that you and I wrestle with daily, hourly, minute. They didn't have that. There was no temptation to sin. And thirdly, they had the gift of immortality, physical immortality. They never would have died physically, which most likely you and I are all gonna do, and they did. Those three gifts were lost. So that's what I mean by, uh, uh, it explains the origin of the darkening of the human mind, the struggle against sin and death. That's letter B. And then letter C in your 2.1, it typifies what continues to happen. Do you have typifies shows? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I got that typo out of there. It shows what continues to happen in human existence. So this, these, the loss of these three gifts, you can kind of see how that plays into all of the subsequent chaos that we see in the news today, right? In terms of what actually happened here and this tragedy, this fall from grace, relative to God's creation, the fall consists in a twofold tragedy. It's an assault, first of all, on the established created order, and I'll show you how in that box below just in a moment. And, and secondly, it's a rejection of God's path to the good and a determination to seek an alternative one. So let me recap before we read the box. Well, actually, no, we can just do it with the box here. So regarding the first point above, what does it mean that it's an assault on the established creative order? Well, just remember the sequence here in the box there. God creates, first of all, the man and then the woman, which we read in chapter 2, and he gives them dominion over the serpent, which is an animal. In fact, it's the lowest of animals. It's the one that slithers on the ground, right? That's significant, actually. Every detail matters here. But the serpent entices the woman who gives to the man the fruit that she picks from the tree, who himself fails God, right? So when this lowest of all, hum of all animals challenges humanity, your eyebrows should blitz off your head right there. Man and woman are supposed to be exercising dominion, bringing the rest of the created order into an order that serves the Lord. 
They're the ones to be giving instruction. When this lowest of animals asserts himself over and says, did God really say to Eve that you'll die when you eat you know, of the fruit? He's challenging her, and he's challenging our information that she only has secondhand. Remember, in the story, God told Adam, and she wasn't even around just yet. So he's being very crafty in his assault. So God shows how to do this properly. Here's what should have happened, or here's how things should go. He approaches the man to whom he had given the law in the first place. You can have every tree, but not this one, all right? Leave this one alone, Adam. And then he approaches the woman, and then he talks to the serpent, as if to say, no, this is the way it should go. And he pronounces judgment on the serpent, then the woman, then the man. So that's the God showing how the order should be restored. And then secondly, it's a rejection of God's path to the good. So against the backdrop of chapters 1 and 2, where God is creating things, evaluating them as good, and, uh, and moving on. Chapter 3, 1 to 7, and we haven't read it. Um, I've summarized it. I think I've got time. Should have done this earlier. Sometimes you, you think you're making a good decision by skipping something, and then you realize, oh, should have read it. So the serpent, verse 1 of chapter 3, was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord God that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Which is a confusion, right? Never said anything about that. Lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, challenging you shall not surely die. He's contradicting God right there. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. So he's making God out to be the villain. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, as if to say, God doesn't want you to rise to his level. Except, actually, that's what God had in mind all along, is to bring his creation, his, his, his people, into fellowship with him, to share. So that's, it is what God wants. He wants us to be like him. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the, which she was right about, by the way, it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It says so in chapter one or two. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Different from naked and unashamed early in chapter one, um, which we didn't read, but this is a... They knew that they were laid bare, that they no longer had those gifts that we talked about. They knew that they had lost the gifts right there. And so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves, to try and get those gifts back. <laughs> ah, give us back the gifts that we had. And it's not, it doesn't work. So against that backdrop, these seven verses we just read, represent the quest for a good thing. Knowledge of what is good and not good is a good thing, but in the wrong way. This is what's in your box here. Apart from God, pursuing knowledge our way rather than his way is what separates us from God. God has defined what is good, and he has set the condition for its continued enjoyment 
If we reject God's path to the good and pursue another, that's trying to be like God in a way that God doesn't have in mind for us to become like him. We're, we're trying to be the deciders of what is good and not good. And the history of the world tells the story of how well that's been turning out. Not very well at all. But there's hope. There's hope. 3.1 in your notes. The enmity between the serpent, the woman, and their respective offspring. So I'm at 3.15 in your Bibles now. If you have a Bible still open, look at chapter 3, verse 15. I'm just camping out on that one uh, longer speech that God is making here. He's, he's addressing the problem. First in verse 14, he addresses the serpent. And then in verse 15, he addresses the woman. I will put enmity... I'm sorry, he addresses... He's still addressing the serpent, but this is the part I want us to talk, to talk about in 15. I will, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. And we wonder, that's Eve, right? And we just keep sailing on. But put a question mark there. And between your offspring and her offspring. Well, wait a minute. Now, Christians have read this verse for centuries as referring to this part of the verse, 15b, call it as being a reference to Jesus and the offspring of Satan. So between your offspring, that is the serpent's offspring, and the woman's offspring, namely Jesus, where, and then it goes on, he shall bruise your head, he in the singular, this offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The heel is a wound, the head is a fatal blow. In other words, we're talking here in the second and third part of that verse 15 about the showdown between Jesus and the devil that Jesus undertakes in his passion, right, on the cross. He dies, he's wounded, uh, but he strikes the actual, he dies, but he strikes the actual death blow to the powers of Satan in the world. He, he breaks the bond of death and shows in his resurrection that his way is the right way. But just if that's the case, then to the degree that the offspring in view here is the offspring of the woman, namely Jesus, then the woman that's being referenced here in verse 15 may be Mary. We're looking for this offspring to do battle with the, uh, the offspring of a woman to do battle with the offspring of this serpent and win which that's where the messianic hope, the hope for Jesus, a savior, comes into play. But we're also looking for a woman who will give birth to this savior figure. So verse 15 in chapter 3 sets in motion a search party <laughs> for the rest of the story of scripture. We're looking for two figures now. We're looking for this savior figure who's going to duke it out with Satan. And we're looking for his mother. And when we find one, we'll probably find the other. So, even embedded in the very early chapters of Genesis is a huge theological trek, a trajectory that is a major opinion in the Catholic understanding of what, where creation is going, how it's our story, what we should be looking for. So there's hope there. It's a hugely hopeful note. There's hope in chapters 6 to 9. I'm just going to water ski over the rest of this bit all the way through chapter, uh, well, to chapter 12. We meet this Noah figure in chapter 5, actually. 
If you look, uh, if you flip your page in your Bible to chapter 5, look at verse 28. So we're in the middle of his genealogy. Everybody sleeps through genealogies, right? All the names, who can pronounce them anyway? What do they mean? Who cares? Um, look at how long he lived. That's kind of cool. Uh, real quick, uh, fun fact, trivia. Um, just two points here. Uh, verse 21, Enoch, kind of a big deal. He lived 65 years. He fathered Methuselah. We'll come back to him. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus the days of Enoch were 365 years. He walked with God and he was not, for God took him. First assumption in the Bible. So some of you Catholic, you Catholics know, most of you non-Catholics might not know, but that we believe that Mary was assumed into heaven, body and soul. We have two stories in the Old Testament where we have the same kind of thing going on. We have Elijah. Uh, it was taken on the chariots of fire. It's a great movie, by the way. Um, and then we have Enoch as the very first one. And he walked with God, and in his walking with God, he just kind of walked right into heaven. When I was young, my dad was a pastor, and, uh, and I remember learning about this in, either in one of the sermons or in our discussions, and I thought, that's how I want to go. I'm going to walk with God all the days of my life. Then I don't have to die. I can just walk right into heaven. I was afraid of death back then. And a second fun fact, Methuselah. Um, so he has Methuselah, Enoch does. Methuselah is the longest living guy in the history of long living people. Uh, verse 27, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. So now you're all going to win at Bible trivia. Then next verse, verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, uh, this, is, this is Methuselah's son, Lamech. He has a son and he calls his name Noah. Noah in Hebrew saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And you're thinking, oh, could this be the guy? Could this be the Savior? But what's missing? His mother. Yeah. So we kind of already know, if we're paying attention to 315, that although this looks like a real hopeful note, and there is a, quite a big deal made about Noah in chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, I mean, he, he does bring rest in one sense. He does bring the story forward. This isn't the guy. He's going to die as well. Beautiful story, though, of the first major act of salvation uh, on behalf of somebody else, where God uses a piece of wood, an ark, and a special guy, Noah, to bring salvation for a bunch of other people, his family, and creation all of the animals that were with him on the ark. So again, creation, salvation is actually aimed at all of creation, not just human souls. It's people and everything else God made. He's going to save it all. But Noah's not the guy. We get to the end of the story with Noah. After the ma massive cataclysmic earth event of the flood, which baptizes the world, you might say. People come out of the ark and a blessing is given. Chapter 9, verse 1, if you're still flipping through your Bible there. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, this is chapter 9, verse 1, very similar words to the words he said to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. Wasn't the case the first time. Serpent wasn't afraid enough of you. So I'm going to help you out a little bit. This is take two. 
and we've baptized the world now. We've gotten rid of the evil, and I'm going to put the fear of you into the, the creatures so that it's a little easier for you to carry out your mission of being fruitful and multiplying and bringing all of the rest of the world, including all the animals and everything, into conformity, into this temple, same plan, mind you, into this temple that I'm having now to sort of refurbish because you guys wrecked it, and, uh, and, and, and refashion so that I can, again, so I can enter it someday and share life with you, share my life with you. So off we go. And uh, what you read in chapter 10 uh, are Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the ways that they themselves have all these kids and they spread uh, out throughout the earth. Uh, each, in fact, let's just capture this. Uh, if you look at chapter 10 in your, in your Bible, verse 5, from the first son, the, the sons of Japheth, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Then we come to the sons of Ham in chapter 6, all the way down through, sorry, verse 6, all the way down through verse 20. So we're still in chapter 10, Genesis 10, all the way down in verse 20. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations talking about where all they went. So we, we're, we're doing a, a good job so far. We're, we're following God's instructions. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And go out. We call that the centrifugal movement, right? Moving out from the center. After they disembarked the ark, they, they went out. And then finally, to Shem also, verse 21. And then if you read all the way down through verse 31 in chapter 10. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So we've got people spreading out. We've got them developing all these different languages, um, taking over these nations. <laughs> Yay, everything's going well, right? Now get to chapter 11. The wheels come off. Now the whole earth had, is this a biblical contradiction? One language? Wait, we just heard three times in chapter 10, they all have different languages. Different lands, different, right? Nope, it's not a problem. Different Hebrew word. Language in verse 11 is a different word from the language in ver uh, the word for language in, in chapter 10. It's more like they all had one mind or one worldview. In other words, they were going the right direction, moving out from the center to do what God had in mind, to fill this temple with images of God. But then the wheels came off and they decided, I don't know if we want to make a name for God, to make God great. Let's do something for ourselves. And they band together, not necessarily all of them, but a large contingent. Enough to say the whole earth, everybody's represented here, had one worldview and they moved centripetally toward the center. They coagulated, they coalesced to do this wicked thing to build this tower to get to heaven their way, on their terms, to make a name for themselves. We don't need God. We'll do it ourselves. We'll get to heaven. We'll do what Enoch did on our own strength. We'll walk right into heaven. But that's not God's intention. God's intention is to give as a gift his presence if we just obey. Just obey, and I will give you as a gift my presence. I will, you will do the things I have in mind for you to do with regard to the creation I made, and I will enter it and gift to you myself 
and you don't have to get to heaven in that scheme. Heaven and earth are going to become one space. My presence will be with you, eternal. But they didn't want to do it that way. They didn't want to do it God's way. They wanted to do it their way. That's why I called it the revolt in Genesis 11, 1 to 9. But there's a recovery plan. There's always a recovery plan. God never gives up. He's got so many tricks up his sleeve. So he calls Abram, one of the last in this genealogy. He will become Abraham later in the story. And this is the last part of our little handout for tonight. Creation, corruption, I should have maybe, yeah. and hope. Yeah. So chapter 12, verse 1, not in your notes. So if you have your Bibles open, let's go there together. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That's almost got a, an air of command to it. It's a mandate. So go you and be a blessing. I'm going to make you a blessing, so go and be a blessing. I will, and As you go and are a blessing, I will bless those who bless you. God's full of blessing. I don't know if you picked up on that uh, in your reading of Scripture, but he's got blessing on the brain. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Does Abram obey, or does he go the way of the nations? He obeys. He gets up, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 70 years old when he departed from Haran, and he took his Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered. Uh, Hebrew's really fun. All the gatherings that they had gathered. And the... And your English Bible probably says something like the people that they had acquired in Haran. What does yours say? What's NAB say? Persons. The persons they had. What's the verb there? Was it acquired to? Same as mine. Okay. The souls that they had made. Same word that God used in all of his creative acts in chapter 1. Asa. The souls they had made. In other words, the converts. So God tells Abram, I'm going to make you a blessing. You're going to be my conduit, my agent of blessing. And I'm going to bless the socks off of the entire earth through you. So get up and go and be a blessing. So what does Abram do? He obeys. And we see the fruit of it. He goes and he makes converts to God's way to follow him. So he gathers them all. And they came to the land of Canaan. And as they did, Abram passed through, this is verse 6, they passed through that land to the place of Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. One of those little remarks, you think, hmm, wonder what's going on there. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. There's an altar at the front of the church. And... We're going to have a seminar at the institute where we teach in October on the Eucharist. And my job uh, in, in that part of the seminar is to talk about this altar business in the early chapters of Genesis, how it starts, um, where our theology of 
the altar comes from in the Old Testament, just like we've been doing with our faith story tonight in Genesis. And one of the points I'm going to make is that the altar is not just the place where we celebrate the sacrifice of the Eucharist, or of the Mass, where we receive the Eucharist through the miraculous work of the priest, Jesus through the priest, but it's actually, uh, so it's not just a, a way for us to get right with God and to address our sin. It's also horizontally a place of proclamation. Abram is told, I'm going to give this land to you. So he builds an altar, and then he does it again in verse, later in verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. He proclaims in the name of the Lord. He calls out the name of the Lord. Because he has been told, this land is going to be land that I, God, am staking for my kingdom. This is where I'm going to start reclaiming the earth that you guys all wrecked. I'm going to rebuild it. So Abram builds an altar, and he proclaims in the name of the Lord to whoever's listening in the surrounding area. And that's what happens at the altar. Not just a place of sacrifice, but a place of proclamation. And on he goes toward the south, the Negev, the south. Um, a few reflections on this twofold structure of the central part of our faith. That was our point two from at the very beginning. Remember, we talked about the Trinity as being a major part of our faith, and then the Mass as being another. I'm oh, sorry, the, the, the structure of the church and where we celebrate the Mass as the central act of our faith. God wants to share his Trinitarian life, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, with us in two ways. Firstly, in this text, he wants to tell us about himself. And then secondly, he wants to give us himself. As he tells us in the text, I want to, I'm building a temple. I want to come and share my life with you. And that's why we have the Bible. That's his statement, his telling. And that's why we have the sacraments, above all the Eucharist, where he shares his own life with us. And that's why the Mass is ordered according to two parts. We have the liturgy, or the order of the word, which is how it begins, and the liturgy of the sacrament. Notice that the liturgy of the word, if you've been, how many people have been to Mass? Most of us, right? A few of us haven't. So when you go to your first Mass, you'll notice this. The liturgy of the word is what starts um, after a time of confession and, and gathering. We have the liturgy of the word where texts are read, and then after that we have the liturgy of the sacrament. The liturgy of the word begins in the section of the Bible where the great story actually begins, in the Old Testament. God wants us to make sense of the sacrament that we're about to celebrate and to receive on the basis of what he tells us through the whole great story, starting in the Old Testament. So our life of faith as friends, some family, is not just a New Testament, here's where we meet about the church and learn about Jesus, but a whole story about what God is up to in the world and where he means to take it all and how we fit even our smaller sub-stories in his larger story. And that's the journey of faith that we're on. So that's the great story, part one. I didn't mind to end about five minutes earlier. Uh, I think we're done at 8.15, right? So I'm not over time, but, uh, but I, yeah, if, if there are any things I can clarify or any questions you have that I can respond to to make anything that was unclear clearer.
this would be the time. I do have a question. Go for it, Alicia. Um, the offspring of the serpent. Yes. I don't want to assume that I know who or what that would be. Want me to guess, or can you can you expand on? Sure, I can expand a little bit. Um, at the tower, in chapter eleven, they they settle in a plain called Shinar, and it's in the area of Babylon, and uh, and the the, uh, the 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 pinnacle of that story maybe. <clears throat> They go in the e- to the east and they settle on a plain in the land of Shinar and they settle there. Read down through the story. Um, they say, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They build this brick. Let us build ourselves a tower, this is verse 4, with its, to- with its top to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They know that God intends to disperse, what to, th- that they're supposed to spread out and fill the earth with God's image. And they don't want to do that. They want to make a name for themselves. So the Lord comes down to see the city, verse 5, and the tower. And he says, behold, they're one people. They have all one worldview. You know, that's what we mean by language there. And this is only the beginning of what they'll do. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down and confuse their language. Make it chaotic so that they may not understand one another's speech. So he disperses them from there over the face of all the earth. Now that there's a wordplay on the confusion of language. And we get it in verse 9. Therefore, its name was called, this place where they tried to build this tower, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Babel picks up like a snowball going down a mountain in the scriptures. It's like a theme. It eventually becomes Babylon, and Babylon is sort of the arch nemesis of God and God's people, Israel. It's the place, actually, that comes and takes up God's people and takes them off into exile. So there's this major tension, friction, between God and his people and his plan on the one hand and this anti-God movement on the other that comes to be understood with the name Babylon. And it actually comes to a head in Revelation where there's this ultimate showdown between God and Michael the archangel and all the angels and Babylon the great. And so this offspring of the serpent we see this theme of this, um, the serpent's progeny, the serpent's offspring, picked up here and there. And it's, it's made manifest. It's made, it comes out in the open every time you see the anti-God movement popping its head up. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty broad, and maybe that's not very specific, but it's sin, people who run head, headlong into sin, people who set themselves up against God. This all is represented in that word offspring of Satan. Did you have a more specific thought? Or? Um, that makes sense. I, I was wondering if um, it could refer to demons because I think that's how it would have been interpreted in mm-hmm. my past. And so mm-hmm. I just wanted to know if there, it sounds like, like you said, it's very broad. So it's very compact. Yes, I would things. include demons for sure. Uh-huh. Um, the interesting thing about the story in Genesis is that it's an it's a it's so it's this it's Lucifer in the form of an animal, a, a created thing in the physical world that we experience. So it kind of bonds together the spiritual world, demons, 
and Satan with the physical world, all of us and our entrapment to Satan and his demons and our willingness to be a part of that kingdom, Babylon, call it, and set ourselves up against God rather than God's kingdom under Abram and his offspring moving a different direction. So, yeah, it's, I would include, for sure, the demons. Yeah. Anything else? I have a question. Janice. Um, it's kind of two parts. When you're talking about the gifts that, the, that Adam and Eve had, and one of them being the not being tempted, um, so when, and maybe this is just asking for clarification, when, when the serpent Comes was talking to... Yeah. At Eve, he didn't tempt her, but he caused her to doubt. Is that his way around that gift? And then, second part of that, if there was no tempting for sin, how would they even know what the sin was if sin hadn't been done yet? Like with with the Old Testament, they give the the law, the, yeah, the Ten law to tell you what it sure. is. How would they? That's after sin is in the world. Now this is before sin's in right. the world. So he has to create. <laughs> and something I didn't talk about um, is when in that first couple of in verse um, in verse three, God said, "Let there be light," and and there was light. This is. The way I love to, to describe it poetically is this is the first person of the Trinity saying to the second person of the Trinity, come forward and light the workspace, and then we'll get to work. And then, but then that clause, he separated the light from the darkness, is not just a spatial statement about, what, you know, about separating the workspace, but if Jesus is the light, then the darkness might be the demons and or all, all the, the, the third of heaven fell, before the creation of the world, Lucifer taking a third of the angels with him. This is the moment in our text that's talking about that separation. And ever since then, Lucifer and his ilk have been trying to figure out a workaround to sort of lay claim to God's creation again. And this was the story in our text tonight. And um, so that, that addresses maybe the second part of your question. The first part is how is, how is their temptation? I, I'm probably not the most qualified person in the room. Father, Father Clark's here and Father Worth just left um, to talk about what we call the preternatural gifts, the one of which was the, um, the absence of concupiscence, that, that wrestling with sin. And I wouldn't necessarily say uh, it's, it's not within their daily experience in a natural way, as it is in ours. And that's the difference between a pre-fall and a post-fall situation. Now it's just within our daily struggle that we have to struggle against temptation. Not so with them. The approach of the serpent represents an exception to the norm. The normal state, the natural state of things was, that was the absence of any kind of thought that without any additional extracurricular temptation that they would fall into sin. That make sense? Um, whereas we might just, yeah, without Satan or any demon coming and tempting us, we might just, you know, in our own weakness do that. They didn't have that weakness. So I don't know if that's helpful. Maybe a little fuzzy, but, and we'll talk about it, I think, in future units. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. 
For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.